Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and today I am joined by three best-selling authors, all with new books out. And these are the days that I can't believe I get to do what I do. Uh, hang on to your hats, because right out of the gate, I am starting with Karen Slaughter. Karen is the international best-selling author of more than 20 novels, both series and standalones. Her latest is a standalone titled False Witness, and it continues her hot streak of topical thrillers bursting with immediacy and thrills. I mean, she really needs no introduction, but if I were published in over 120 countries and had sold more than 35 million books, I would kind of want people to mention it as often as possible. So here now from her home down in Georgia is my conversation with Karen Slaughter. Karen, thanks for, for joining me. Uh, False Witness is your latest standalone novel. I think this is maybe the first novel that I've read uh, in, uh, that makes mention of the pandemic. Uh, it, it's not the focus by any means, but you, you've worked it into the story. But that's not the only current event in your work. You seem to really use your writing as a way to maybe understand some of the very confusing times that we live in these days. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And one of the reasons I wanted to incorporate the pandemic is I remember reading Pale Horse, Pale Rider in college, which is a, a short novel by Catherine Ann Porter, who was also called Callie when she was a child. So I've got a Callie in the book. Uh -huh. But it really brought that pandemic to a visceral point for me. Because, you know, Catherine Ann Porter had the Spanish flu, which they called it the Spanish flu, even though it was, probably came from Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> and she was so stricken by it that she had lingering effects for the rest of her life. So her hair turned completely white from her body temperature being so high and the, the stress and trauma of fighting off the, the flu. And, you know, she's worried about losing her job and her housing. And she's worried about you know, her boyfriend has it, her fiance. And I mean, it was just a very realistic uh, interpretation of it that I didn't get when I read about it in middle school, you know, when it was just a paragraph in the textbook and, oh, a million people died and it was bad, but you know, now we're yeah. better. Uh, <laughs> so I, I wanted to put the pandemic into a story because I felt like we're just going to forget a lot of things. Mm. When the vaccines came along, I was in the middle of writing the book. And so I did a lot of research into, well, how did people perceive the polio vaccine? And I mean, it, the same stuff we're hearing now 
it's too new. I don't trust the science. I may be a hairdresser, but I'm also an immunologist at night. You know, right. I, all of that stuff that was happening uh, then is happening now. So it was a good point of reference for that. Yeah, yeah. And you touch on uh, current event issues, if you will, in, in, in a lot of your books. I mean, you seem to, if you, you like the rip from the headlines, not in terms of like taking a true crime thing, but, you know, you've dealt with uh, sort of the Me Too movement a little bit and the, the political landscape uh, is, I mean, is this a way for you to kind of just work it out on the page and, uh, and figure it out for yourself? Or are you trying to have, is it more of a discussion with the reader? It's more of a discussion with myself because I don't really think about my readers when I'm writing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love them. I'm so grateful for them. I hope they're pleased. But when I'm writing, it's just me and the story. Mm-hmm. And so I do want to investigate both sides. I think it's, I mean, obviously I have my own point of view, but it's very boring to just read from one point of view. And it's also really unfair to paint the side that doesn't agree with me as crazy or stupid or whatever, you know, because, yeah. and that's, it's just not interesting yeah. if you are, are so black and white and making a caricature of the other side. So I try to understand and balance on both sides. I mean, I totally understand vaccine hesitancy. I've been really annoyed by anti-vaxxers for a very long time. Uh, and it's come to like a head. So that's like really the only thing I take a really strong position on because it's such a white Western privilege yeah. to say, well, I'll get typhoid. I'll be fine. Well, yeah. Well, my tax dollars are paying for you to be in that hospital, buddy. And right. you know, congratulations. You're not dying of cholera like people in uh, third world countries. Good yeah. for you. Uh, so <laughs> That kind of thing, that's really the only thing, well, that and Nazis, you know, that I take a hard line on. (laughs) But, you know, I want to know, I want to explore both sides. And, you know, if one person thinks, you know, on the left, well, maybe people on the right aren't completely crazy. Or maybe somebody on the right thinks, well, maybe people on the left aren't really sucking the blood of babies to be younger. (laughs) That That's the kind of stuff that I try to do in my books. But it's more to have an understanding. Well, in False Witness, uh, Lee has built up her life from a very low place, and we get glimpses and flashes of where she came from and, and how bad it was. But you start her in a, in a place where she's rebuilt herself into someone who's who's pretty impressive. She's a lawyer. She's 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 doing good. But in any good thriller, you kind of have to take someone's good life and then put it at risk, right? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, straight off the bat, she she wanted a good life. She shouldn't have been in the first chapter of my novel. I mean, that's just a bad life decision to be in a Karen Slaughter novel. Uh, but she is she is pretty accomplished. And she went to Northwestern. She's got a like a great career. She's got a wonderful husband slash ex-husband. They're co-raising her great daughter together. But we slowly learn over the, the book that perfect life can very easily fall apart if one yeah. thing is pulled from it. And that's her control. And I love the character. Her name's Lee Collier. And she's very, very loosely based on my friend Alifair Burke. Because, you know, oh. Alifair's, when she was growing up, they weren't by any stretch um, successful. Her father was a college professor making basically, you know, minimum wage, which is the same for college professors everywhere now. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, she, and she worked her butt off and she ended up getting into Stanford. And, you know, now she's a, She's a law professor. She's a writer in her own right. She co-writes Mary Higgins Clark books. So she's pretty freaking accomplished. And I've always, 
even as a, like a, a college dropout, I've had a lot of respect for her. And I thought, you know, I was thinking of her a little bit when I was writing Lee, because Lee has that same hustle that Alifair does. But also, you know, Lee has a really horrible thing happen to her that Alifair didn't happen as far as, um, you know, being in that first chapter of yes. a Karen Slaughter novel. Talking with so many suspense and, and thriller writers, I mean, it seems like the most dangerous place is the past. We're trying to escape it. It can always come back on us. Someone can come out of the past and sort of ruin what you've got. I mean, are you on the run from anything in your past that, that, that we should know about? Is it, you know, anything more more damning than, you know, bad fashion choices in the 80s or something? Well, if you're trying to get me to confess to murder, good luck. <laughs> the FBI isn't going to crack me. You're not, buddy. Damn. Um, you know, I think that we're all in some ways haunted by our past. You know, even if it is those bad fashion choices or in my case, perm, but I still, I stand by that perm. It was awesome. <laughs> um, I mean, there are two kinds of people, people who, if you say, here's a time machine, there's a certain number who will say, let's go to the past. And there's a certain number who say, let's go to the future. And I'm a future person. Uh -huh. You know, I want to know what's going to happen next and what's going on and how things are going to shake out. And, you know, are we really heading toward dystopia? Is that, <laughs> that <laughs> going to happen? But I do think one of the, the things that I write about in this book is if you don't deal with stuff that happens in your past, it's always going to haunt you. And that's mm -hmm. true with a murder or a perm or shoplifting or, you know, whatever. It's yeah. always going to take a little piece of you if you don't say, hey, you know what? I was only 12. That guy deserved to be murdered. You know, I'm okay with it. I'm ready to move on. You know, and people talk about like closure mm -hmm. or forgiveness. And I, I don't believe in necessarily in forgiving people, but I think you've got to forgive yourself to move on. And that was really what played out in the book was, can you give yourself forgiveness for your part that you played in something, even if you were the victim of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's, it's all right. We've, we've gone to therapy now. This is good. I'll send you my bill later. <laughs> well, it, it, you mentioned sort of looking into the future a little bit. When, when you were starting this book, you know, back in March of 2020, at, at the height of uh, the pandemic, and the questions that we all had about it of what, of what in the heck is going to happen, uh, you had to sort of look into the crystal ball a little bit and predict uh, what life was going to be like uh, on the other side. How do you think you did? Well, you, well, you tell me. <laughs> so part of it was just, like I said, looking at history. Yeah. You know, I mean, like smallpox. Do you know anybody who's died of smallpox? <laughs> Not in my lifetime. Uh, but there's like, historically, it goes back even to uh, the, the court of Catherine the Great just people being terrified of vaccinations, right? Mm. So that was pretty easy to predict. Um, the microchips, I mean, I really wish people understood what a microchip was because <laughs> they would know, it, of course, it's in Viagra. You know, it needs a bigger um, yeah. <laughs> way to get into your body. You know, that kind of thing, it really, I could rely on history. But fortunately, this is my 21st book. I started writing when I was 10. Uh, and so I was able to encapsulate those COVID moments within the text. Mm -hmm. And mostly I, I use it as a way to talk about, you know, Lee's life is a life of privilege and they're masking and they're distancing and they're hand sanitizing. Callie's is not. 
Yeah. And it's kind of laughable to her that people are taking this luxury of um, using the COVID protocols. And it just doesn't really make a lot of sense to her that people have a life where they value, they care about their lives so much because mm-hmm. their lives are so great that they want to, you know, keep them going. It's that kind of difference that made it really easy. But also, you know, I was doing a lot of scrambling. And I had to really pay attention to what was going on. And obviously, I'm one of those privileged people because I could work from home and, you know, I'm yeah. very introverted. So I did not miss any of the hugging or the socializing. <laughs> or, and I'm like, you know, we should probably continue that for at least the rest of my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I was really following what people were doing and trying to capture that. And that was the hard part. Well, I had the privilege to uh, sit next to you at a dinner one night uh, in Bauchacon. You know, I discovered you're you're quite the raconteur. Uh, Does storytelling run in your family? Is that something that you grew up with? Well, it's, you know, I come from the South and uh, we, everything has a story. Even if you ask where the bathroom is, there's going to be a story, you know, we, and we all give country directions. It's never left on main street. It's like left at that white house with that big dog. Now he's the one who bit my uncle. (laughs) I I think that's just part of how I was raised. My dad was, is still a storyteller and it's just something I, maybe it's because of the heat, uh, (laughs) where everything's like, you know, just give me a minute. Let's slow this down. (laughs) (laughs) So you'd think air conditioning would have changed that, but it's still part of who we are. Yeah. You have readers all over the world and you've given them a glimpse into Georgia and, and Atlanta to a lot of people that are probably never going to travel there. And, and this is their only window in, into this world. What kind of things do you hear from readers in other countries about uh, the, the place that you represent to them? Is, is anyone uh, dying to come there? Or are they scared off because of all the horrible things that happen? Well, um, I think in general, people in Europe are scared of America anyway, because they think we're all running down the streets with guns. Um, but they're not entirely wrong. Fair. Uh, I, there have been a lot of people who've come to Georgia and there's kind of been like a greatest hit stops along the way in Atlanta. Um, Grant County, which was my first series. It's not an actual place, but I Mm. occasionally get emails saying I'm coming to Georgia. Where's Grant County? I want to see it. I'm like, Oh, sorry. But mostly in the beginning of my work, it wasn't people in Europe who had grand misconceptions about Georgia and specifically Atlanta. It was people in the Northeast. Ah. You know, and I'll never forget in Boston. Well, one, they were making fun of my accent. And it's like, have you heard yourself? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because you sound like English is not your first language. But they were saying, oh, how can you live in such a racist city? And I was like, hang on, Boston. I know. Oh. I see you. You know, I'm a minority in Atlanta. It's, I think, 55% African-American. We've got 1 million Mexican-Americans living here. I mean, we've got a, a huge Hmong society. I mean, everything you could think of is in yeah. Atlanta. We're an international city. So part of my educating people was just like, hey, you know, Atlanta, we're not all sitting down here uh, drinking mint juleps and burning crosses in our yard. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, But that's not an issue as much anymore because the film community and television community has done so much here. And they've yeah. been like, wow, this is a fantastic place to live, uh, it, except for August when it's really hot. Yeah. But 
we've had so more people have been exposed to it and i mean we props to daniel glover for putting atlanta here because it's like mm-hmm. hey look you know these are southerners too yeah uh, this is a southern point of view uh and the music scene and all that has made a big difference so it's it's more of that not europeans because you know the, the thing with europeans is you can just like convince them any violence, any like serial killer, any they're they're totally one hundred percent there that it can happen in America. Wow, oh, I never thought about that. That's that's sad. <laughs> well, we've kind of exported that, right? Because that's true. You know, our movies and all of that, and it goes both ways. Like if 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 I were ever to visit, you know, someplace like Copenhagen or something, I would expect it to be raining. Yeah, know? yeah, wearing those big sweaters and yeah. <laughs> Uh, excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much, Karen. Uh, congratulations uh, again. Times twenty one. I, I mean, I, you, I think you know what you're doing by now. I hope so. <laughs> Next on the bestseller parade is Brad Parks, author of several standalone bestsellers as well as the Carter Ross series. His brand new book is called Unthinkable, and it uses Park's trademark skill of putting characters into impossible situations and letting the reader watch them squirm their way out. I caught up with Brad way out in a cabin in the woods where he was for the summer. Brad, uh, thank you for joining me. It's good to see you. We've bumped into each other a lot at uh, conferences over, over the years, uh, so it's, it's, it's always a pleasure to, to hang out with you. Congratulations on the new book, Unthinkable. Uh, and indeed, the events in this book are unthinkable. And yet, how did you think of them to make them up? Uh, <laughs> you've, I've, I've got you. Beatner, you've already stymied me with your wordsmithing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, Eric, I, I know you're, you're a writer. And yeah, we've, we've hung out at, at many of the same bars and many of the same award ceremonies and everything like that. So I, I know you know your way around a typewriter, too. So I'm, I'm going to go straight kind of into the inside baseball talk. With this book, I started with stakes. Mm. You know, what's what's at stake? What does the character have to lose? And I really built it around that. So I kind of started with, okay, what is the worst thing I can possibly think of asking a character to do? And in this case, it's kill his wife, yeah. right? I mean, that that seemed, you know, like a pretty gripping, awful thing. And then I kind of, well, why might this guy have to kill his wife? And can I, can I put something else in there that would also be completely unthinkable? So, you know, what what really drives this story, and, and this is something I love being able to put my characters into is they have a choice between two things and they're both awful. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and then which way are they going to go? How are they going to work their way out of this? What path do you take when there is no path to take? Yeah. That was really the puzzle I began with. And as usual, I'm a, I'm a solid gold pantser. So I had no idea oh. how this was going to end, how it was going to work out. It was a fun journey for me, for sure. That's crazy. Hats off to you for that. I am, I am an outliner and I will never understand the other side <laughs> of the fence. But uh, you specialize in these kind of thrillers where you do, you, you put a squeeze on, on your characters in a lot of these sort of high concept ways. I mean, Unthinkable, it's like the, the, the reason that you allude to, and we don't want to give any spoilers, but uh, the, the reason that he is forced to make this decision is pretty out there and uh, in a high concept way, as we say here in Hollywood, which, right. which uh, you know, you've done before. I mean, you've written about quantum physics and the actor who gets sucked into the FBI. You've, you've got all these these wild plots that you put these characters into the vice grip. And I have to say, in knowing you, you have a very 
mischievous smile that uh, makes a lot of sense when you read your books, Brad. <laughs> and, and I know that's not really a question, but I just want to point that out that we see you. We know okay, what's going on. Fair enough. On. I, I feel seen already. I, yes, there are, <laughs> there are devious, stupid things going on in my head for sure. I kind of subscribe to what I call the anti-Hippocratic oath, which, you know, if, if doctors are all about the Hippocratic oath, do no harm. The mm-hmm. anti-Hippocratic oath when it comes to your characters is do lots of harm. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, really kind of put them in these awful, horrible, in this case, unthinkable situations and see what they're going to do. But then, you know, I think when, when I'm kind of unfurling what that situation will be, that's actually when my inner nerd comes out. Uh, mm. You know, I, and I've, I've always been a guy who I love the parts of the book that no one actually talks about. Right. You know, some, and, 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 and whatever I, I should learn, this is my 11th novel now. And I should learn that I, I need to stop geeking out so much about things like quantum physics, or, you know, in this case, there is this lawsuit. We can unfurl this a little bit, okay. but basically Nate Lovejoy, the protagonist learns that his wife, Jenny, who's a very high powered lawyer is going to win this important lawsuit that has this incredible unintended consequence Uh, And that is it will trigger a series of events that will lead to a global warming catastrophe, right? And in kind of researching that and in making that plausible, basically, you know, you kind of have to learn stuff, right? And and inevitably, it becomes very high concept. Yeah, she, she thinks she's doing the right thing. She's doing the right thing. So this is another thing. I love having characters do the right thing and still get screwed for it. Right. right? I mean, isn't that a, a wonderfully horrible thing to do to your characters? <laughs> you know, and you learn these things, you know, and I always hope that that folks might even, you know, Google a thing or two as they're reading my book to see yeah. that, no, I'm not actually making this up. Uh, <laughs> this stuff really actually exists. Right. And it's fun to kind of then, you know, be playing with, well, then what is he making up? If you're like the guy in the band whose favorite track is the B-side that uh, no one else likes. <laughs> exactly. And I, part of the of doing research, too, is also you get that base of what you need to know in order to tell the story. And then it's knowing selectively what to leave out, what, what's, right. what's not going to be interesting for the reader, or what's not crucial to the story. But as long as you have that underpinning of truth and fact to it, it makes unbelievable situations believable. Yeah, you know, I, I always say there there was kind of only one thriller writer who ever got away with not leaving stuff out, uh, and it was Tom Clancy. And if you really like submarines, you're in heaven, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, the the rest of us need to kind of subscribe to that ninety ten rule, where yeah. <laughs> you know ninety percent of the stuff you're actually leaving out. Well, you left your uh, Carter Ross series after six books. Uh, I got to think that writing a series compared to some of these standalones that you have must, must feel like a warm blanket, like it's familiar territory. Right, right. You get to know the characters well after that many books. And it kind of is it's easy to start on page one of, you know, book four, five, six. Right. Because the world is already built for you. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, I but, there, you know, there are trade offs in a series. There are certain characters who are safe. You know, exactly, like yeah. I know I can't kill off Carter Ross's, you know, sidekick, uh, Tommy Hernandez, the great street reporter, because there, there are readers who have already told me Tommy Hernandez is their favorite character. Yeah. And if I ever did anything to Tommy, they would find me and burn my house down. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, versus in a in a standalone, no one's safe. And that but I love that. Right. You know, because there's always that thing. So I have, I have this thing, Eric, I, I, I do talk to my characters. Um, okay. You know, for as for as goofy as that sounds, I mean, I, I really I have conversations with them, 
And there was always that conversation in a series. And I, I deliver the characters the very, very bad news that, that I'm sorry, we're about 40,000 words in. Things are starting to feel a little boring. One of you has to die. Like, <laughs> I, I regret to deliver this news. And when I'm giving that talk, right, Carter is always, and Carter and a few other characters are always kind of smugly with their arms crossed, knowing, <laughs> well, you know what? I'm safe. He's not going to kill me. Uh, versus in the standalone, they're all chewing their nails and, uh, and leaving skid marks in their underwear. Well, you and I uh, started publishing, I think, exactly the same time. Your first book came out in 2009, right? Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah. So You were, uh, you were earlier in the year than me, though, weren't you? You're like a seasoned veteran compared to me. I was December. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I think we were January, February. Oh, um, yeah, so you're, you're way ahead of me. <laughs> but uh, since that point, our careers have taken quite different trajectories. <laughs> you're, you're, you're 11 books in. I, even though I've, I've gotten uh, 27 books under my belt in, in that time, and I now find myself, I'm, I'm agentless with, with no book deal. I'm sort of, right. I'm, I'm, I'm back out floating with the, in the ocean trying to tread water. But w without downplaying your talents uh, and, and your skill as a writer and the work that you've put in, is making a career in writing, there's a certain amount of luck to it, yeah? Yeah, and I would actually tell you, Eric, I've had none of it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think honestly what I've had on my side is a certain amount of desperation. Oh. Um, you know, I'm a former journalist, a, a former newspaper journalist. And so, and I, I took a buyout from my job in 2008 and I knew I could never go back. And that has, I mean, it, it's led me to some, some tough decisions at times. I, I don't talk about this a lot, but like I fired my first agent because I just felt like she wasn't going to get me where I needed to go. Yeah. Heck, I got fired by my second agent because things weren't working out between us. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now with Amazon Publishing. They're my third publisher. You know, so there's, there's been some, you know, a lot of bumps in the road with that. I've had editors leave. You know, I do, I do some ghostwriting that I can't talk about a lot, but that, you know, kind of has helped me get through some lean times when my own books maybe weren't doing as well. So, I mean, you know, believe me, even, even those of us who've, I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, I consider myself wildly fortunate to be able to make a living. <laughs> this. I'm well aware of that. I've got it good. Right. But uh, there's a, there's a lot of bumps on that path too. Um, but I think it, yeah, it was always knowing that um, I was, I was walking the high wire without a net that kind of made me like, I, I was forced to, to make things happen. Like, you know, so, um, you know, my kind of my, my big breakout novel, uh, my first standalone was called say nothing, uh, which came out in 2017. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, sold very well, became a bestseller, uh, overseas and whatnot. And, um, I also, before I published that, I wrote three standalone novels that I threw away because uh -huh. I felt like they wouldn't be good enough. Like I felt like they weren't at that level that they needed to be at in order to garner that kind of attention. Uh, you know, so there've been a lot of sacrifices like that and a lot of lumps and that, that doesn't even count the, the partial novels that I've thrown away or the, you know, the, <laughs> the start and you get 30,000 words in and you realize, Oh my God, this is a steaming pile of dog poop. I got to just throw this thing away. <laughs> or, or you send 60,000 words to your agent and you're like, so, what do you think of this? And her, and her first words are, well, I know who the killer is. And you're like, okay, <laughs> so we're done here. Click. You know, um, you know there's been a lot of, uh, you know, there, there've been a lot of tears. There's been a lot of, of hard moments, uh, you know, like a, uh, throwing away. Actually it was, 
believe it or not, it wasn't that when I was in, in the mode of throwing away standalones and that, that was in the, in the mid 20 teens where I was throwing away a lot of like full fleshed out, had poured my heart and soul into it. 110,000 word manuscripts. Right. Um, wow. The, yeah, the, the first one I was actually pretty sanguine about, like I was okay. Um, the, the second one, um, I dealt with in a, you know, in a very mature manner, uh, which is, you know, I, I snapped at my children for no reason and, and then stormed out of the house and then, you know, bought a box of cookies and then ate them in the car with, you know, tears streaming down my face and whatnot. Um, but the third book, I, I, I actually had my full meltdown in front of my children. So I always said that, you know, um, my uh, that the first time I saw my dad cry was when his father died. The first time my kids saw me cry was when that book died. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there there have been those kind of like low moments. But the thing is, you can choose grit, right? You can wake up every yes. day and say, I am going to be gritty today. Even though things are not working out well for me, I'm still going to keep at it. And I'm still going to, okay, I've had to throw away that novel. I'm just going to get back on the horse and write another one. Um, and I think if I, if I really truly have a talent or an ability, it's been that. That's all good stuff to hear and things that that we all need to be reminded of, I think, uh, from, from time to time. Yeah. Cause I think, I, and I, I totally agree with that. I think that it's, it's being tenacious and having the ability to, to let certain books go, even though you put in the work and just say, well, okay, there's, you know, cause the ideas are free. There's always more ideas right. down the road. Right. And that, that's, then that's the one thing in this crazy business we can control is, right. is what we yeah, put on no, the page. Yeah. And yeah, that's, and that's, that's really smart of you like to, to think in terms of what can I control? Because by the way, that, that thing you can't control sometimes is, you know, your marketing budget at the publishing house. Right. Or, you know, whether or not you get co-op at Barnes and Noble yeah. or whether or not Barnes and Noble will pay attention to your book at all. You know, mm. like you just can't, you know, but so yeah, you, you can control the ideas. You can control your effort. All right. Well, I'm going to go uh, quit my job now and uh, <laughs> get a little bit of that uh, fire under me to, to, to keep this thing going. But uh, Brad, it was, uh, it was great to see you again. Great talking to you. Congratulations on Unthinkable uh, and may your uh, hot streak continue. Uh, keep, keep, coming up with ways to put your characters between a rock and a hard place and then an even harder place on top. Awesome. We'll do. Well, Eric, it was great seeing you again. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person real soon. Finally, this episode, I have Glenn Eric Hamilton, author of the Van Shaw series, which is a favorite of mine. The latest Van Shaw thriller is Island of Thieves, and it furthers the adventures of this thief-turned-good guy. Glenn was kind enough to make time for me only days after he and his family relocated back to the Seattle area, so he was literally surrounded by boxes still when we talked. Glenn Eric Hamilton, welcome back to Writer Types, uh, and welcome back to Van Shaw. He has returned for his sixth adventure in Island of Thieves, uh, which I noticed just got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. Congratulations. Thank you very much. People seem to really have taken to Van. Uh, did you know all along that he would have this appeal for readers, or were you a little worried when you gave him such a complicated past? <laughs> well, I think people groove on complicated pasts for one thing. You know, we all we all like fairly complex backstories as long as they're engaging. 
in truth, you know, I didn't know whether Van would connect with readers the same way that he connected with me, but I'm glad he has. You know, it's it's, uh, it's part and parcel of the the process to to try just try to write something that interests you. You know, if it's jazzing you, I feel like that excitement always comes out in the writing. When you first uh, introduced Van and then uh, started to gain some readership, who've now have become very dedicated and loyal readers, uh, waiting, anticipating for, for Van's next adventure, has your relationship to him changed at all now that he, you know, in a way, belongs to the the reading public almost as much as you, or are you still very? protective and like, no, no, he's your guy. He's going to do whatever you want and readers just need to follow along. That is a very timely question because just (laughs) really in the last book or two, I've started to get emails and tweets and other things from fans, you know, very polite, you know, nobody's, you know, in full nerd rage about anything along the way, you know, I'll occasionally get the, I'll get the occasional criticism, but for the most part, you know, people are really involved with Van's personal life. You know, in wanting him to either you know date a particular character or have another have a, have a side character return, you know, and, and occasionally those those are great ideas, um, and I do I do consider them all. I have to say, but it's the sort of thing where I've realized that wow, if this continues to grow at the pace that it is by like you know book sixteen or twenty, and I'm hoping there are sixteen or twenty. Uh, I'm going to have to have a personal assistant just to keep track of who told me what and make sure that I'm not like legally obligated to to do anything or to ignore anything, as the case may be. Yeah. It's that unsolicited manuscript submission thing. (laughs) Well, and I would imagine when you get up that high, as you know, so many of our favorite writers do, you get into like the 20s of the books. At some point, you have to kind of lose track of maybe what you did to your own character back in book two or something. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm to the stage now where I've I haven't full on committed to creating a series bible, but I need to get there because yeah. it's like I'll, it'll it'll just nag at me. It's like I know I said what kind of car Willard drove in one of the books, and I'm damned if I can remember what it is. And you know, who has time when you're trying to beat a manuscript deadline to search through a thousand pages looking for where you wrote that right yeah yeah so it's one of those things where i may i may recruit friends and family members to kind of go could you just make some notes if you're reading this one that would be great thank you yeah i think that's that's smart i will buy you an excellent dinner to save me time Well, van's uh, his history as a thief is something that he cannot seem to escape and you recently relocated back to the Seattle area where you are from and where these books are set. So uh, it, it seems like maybe uh, you can't escape your own past, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like that. And, and you know, to clarify for the listeners, by recently, we mean I'm still surrounded by boxes and bins, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's, 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 you know, you can, count, you can count the number of days on two hands. So uh, since we unloaded the truck, so we are, we're still, and and when we arrived, we were so exhausted from the move process that the whole notion of unpacking was just like, maybe tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Right right now we sleep. So yes, it's, you know, we went on book tour for the fourth book, Mercy River, and visited Seattle at the exact time that it seduces tourists, right? Mm-hmm. You go in the spring and it's gorgeous and it's a, you know, it's a sunny day and everything's green and everything smells great. And, and, you know, and it worked its magic on us. We're like, you know, 
it's time to come back. When we had moved to California in 20, uh, 2005, we thought of it as kind of a five-year adventure, right? Hmm. And during that five years, we had a kid and, you know, got careers and I started writing and all of that stuff. And, you know, the five years turned into, you know, the better part of 17 by the end of it. Wow. And so, uh, you know, we, we planned to come back for at least a couple of years. And then there was this pandemic thing that happened. Yeah. Uh, and everything sort of got put on hold for a little while. But it did give us time to make plans and um, uh, really make sure that we were moving in the way that we wanted to move or and moving where we wanted to move in the city. Well, it's, it, I try not to take it as a sign uh, that the forces of nature uh, are unhappy with you on this move. But of course, the minute you land there and get a new address, <laughs> it turns into the surface of the sun. <laughs> yes, yes. It's even worse in Portland, if you can believe that. You know, but, um, but yeah, the, well, here's, here's the kicker is that when we moved down to Los Angeles in 2005, I don't know if you remember this, but that was a time of torrential rains, <laughs> the tremendous flood that hit Los Angeles County in, in January of 2005. And, you know, at the start, people were joking, oh, you brought the rain with you. Uh -huh. And then after about two weeks of solid rain, you know, they weren't smiling when they said it. Yeah. It was like, get out. <laughs> You know, you've brought this with you. And now what happens is we move back to Seattle and we brought the heat. You know? <laughs> and, and, and it's just, you know, I, I, emphasize, I cannot emphasize enough that, that correlation does not imply causation. Um, <laughs> we, this is not our fault. Please don't burn us as witches. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, do you have any sense that, uh, you know, writing these books, being back in that area will, will make your job uh, a little bit easier? You're not having to reach so far back into your own memory for uh, yeah, what it's that like? Was, that was a big reason for coming back, honestly. You know, I, 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 and I take two to three location scouting visits each year uh, while being in California because Seattle is one of the fastest growing cities uh, in the world, much less yeah. the U.S., and it's just changing at a phenomenal rate. But at the same time, being here in person allows me to do things like take somebody out to lunch and interview them, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you know, get to know the community and in a, in a deeper sense that, uh, you know, I never plan to move away and then start writing about it. No. Um, but the longer I, I was away, the more I wanted to get deeply enmeshed and the harder that was to do. And so that was a big reason, uh, one of the big reasons for, for relocating back. Well, you know, I was having a talk with an author uh, recently about how difficult it can be to read uh, books in our genre while you're trying to write a book in the same genre. And, you know, how you, you always worry about it. If, is that going to influence what you're writing, putting down? You, you don't want to unduly absorb someone else's voice and end it up on your page. Do, do yeah. you, where do you, where do you fall on this? I, I'm generally of the opinion that I'm conscious enough now of my own writing voice that I'm less worried about accidentally picking up somebody else's voice and, and habits than I, than I was when I was a beginner. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, experience is the best teacher. And if I do a turn of phrase, it seems a little odd for me. I can go, oh, that's a, that's a, that sounds like Connolly or, or yeah. that sounds like, sounds like Laura Lippman who are standing, you know, if I can write like Connolly and Laura Lippman, wonderful, you know, that's yeah. fantastic, but I don't want to be imitated. Right. But I find that I don't read a lot of lone wolf hero types of novels at the same rate that I used to. I used to read a lot of those. Because I'm writing that, I'm kind of thinking in that vein all the time anyway. 
Yeah. And so you know, usually when I'm pleasure reading, I want to read something different. Do you have any go-tos uh, that you like to read for inspiration if you need to sort of grease the wheels of your own creativity? Uh, yeah, it's funny. When I need inspiration, weirdly enough, I tend to go back in time a little bit. I will read like some of the early like Robert Lee Parker novels or the early Travis McGee's or something like that. Hmm. Mostly because, uh, and not that the, the modern authors can be inspired as well. I mean, I mentioned Laura Littman, her, her novel Sunburn is, is absolutely a, a oh, wonderful character study. It's fantastic. But sometimes just to sort of, um, to, to kickstart things, to get that spark, I often like to reread stuff that I read very early on, long before I became a writer. Mm. And it's weird. It, it kind of engage, engages that same excitement that I used to have without the feeling of comparison. Yeah. Sometimes when you read a modern writer along the way, you're, you're comparing your own work to theirs. Um, when it's removed by a generation or two, I have less of that feeling. Yeah, definitely. And it's like going back to the, the well, finding that thing that originally inspired you to, to want to pick up a pen, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, in Island of Thieves, uh, Van sets out, he, he has to hunt a killer. And I mean, over the years, you've put him through so many paces. I want to know what you do when you come up against something that is outside of Van's skill set. How do you overcome an obstacle like that when you're writing? Meaning if he's in a situation that he's just not able to deal with? Or yeah, I mean, he, he's talking about research where I have to research well, he's he's so so accomplished. You know, he's he's been army ranger, and then he has his background in in, in the criminal element. But surely you, he's going to run into something that he can't do. Maybe he's not an expert at uh, you know tying a bow hitch to to a <laughs> sailboat or something. You know, whatever it is, is that. But do you do you like giving him an opportunity to learn, or do you figure out a way to make him an expert at something that, that oh, maybe absolutely. you didn't know he was an expert before? Yeah, yeah. Well, Van enlisting help and friends and and meeting new people in Island of Thieves, for example. You know, he's he's dealing with molecular chemistry to a certain wow. extent, and you know. He doesn't know, like, you know, as, as, as he puts it, his, his knowledge of chemistry ended with, you know, baking soda and vinegar volcanoes. <laughs> so, you know, he has to enlist help. And, you know, obviously I, as the writer, have to make that help understandable to the reader and hopefully exciting to the reader. That's how Van gathers it, is he's smart enough to ask if he doesn't know and track that down. It's also fun to see him struggle in areas that he's not so accomplished with. And, that, and you know, a lot of that has to do with relationships and <laughs> the emotional aspect of things. It's like, yeah, he can tie a bow hitch to, to the boat. Whether or not he can deal effectively with the crew is something different. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're right back to his complicated history again. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's a little closed off in some ways. And you know, it's always fun to have the supporting characters kick him in the shins. Metaphorically and literally. <laughs> uh, well, so you're six novels in. We certainly hope you get uh, up to, to 26 or as high as you want to go. And it certainly seems like you've got the readership who want to follow Van uh, wherever he goes and wherever uh, you take him. So congratulations on the new one. And Thank you very much. Uh, un unpack your uh, keyboard there and, and get cracking. We need another one. Yeah, yeah. I got to, you know, the problem is the keys have melted together in this heat. I'm going to have to buy a new one. <laughs> Thank you.
Wow, that was a hell of a trio of authors, and I have more in store for you next time. The hits keep coming, so subscribe to the show and get each new episode delivered right to you. We love it when you rate and review the show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll speak with you next time. Mm-hmm.